Welcome to Make Good, the podcast about yarn and knitting from Scratch Supply Co. We are recording today from downtown Lebanon, New Hampshire, and we're really excited to be here. I'm Karen. And I'm Jessica. We're back from Scotland. We actually came home. You might have been worried (laughs) that we had disappeared because it's been a minute, but we're back. And I know that you've all been waiting with bated breath to hear about our Scottish adventures. So get ready, because that's what we're talking about today. First of all, it was amazing. We were traveling with a company called Rowan Tree Travel. They do fiber-focused group tours all over the place. Mm -hmm. They were just really fantastic to work with. And so if you've been thinking about doing a trip big, super recommend. Yeah, you can also join one of Rowan Tree Travel's trips directly. You don't have to do it through a shop specifically, though if your local shop is doing it, that's awesome. You have lots of options. Specifically, we want to say, Susie, you're amazing and we love you so much because Susie was our tour guide for our trip and was a miracle. She was. Our trip went incredibly smoothly, but there was a moment toward the end when we realized between point A and point B, there was a ferry. Mm -hmm. Susie gets very quiet and then comes over and she's like, the ferry may not be running. And I was like, I have 100% confidence that we need to do absolutely nothing to solve this problem. Yeah, to enjoy the trip and not be responsible for (laughs) any of the organization or unexpected surprises that may come up. It was a gift. We also had two really wonderful bus drivers, Joe and John. They told us about things that Susie wouldn't know because she does not live there and pointed out exciting landmarks and took us to a Tesco when we really needed a bathroom break. Basically screeched to a halt on the side of the road so Jessica could pet a cow. Mm -hmm, That did happen. And it was (laughs) glorious. So basically, these people helped us live our best lives. We were unprepared for the fact that that entire country is peppered with sheep. Made of sheep. Sheep on craggy hillsides, (laughs) sheep in the road, like they were everywhere. And it was joyful surprise every time we saw one. Well, thank you to all of these people. And let's start telling you about the fun things that we did. Yeah. So the first place that we visited was Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. So we're giving you like the highlights of the tour because we did lots of stuff over the 10 days. But the, I think, standout thing at the beginning of our trip was getting to go underneath the city. And go do like a historical and also kind of haunted tour of underground Edinburgh. If you're familiar at all with the geography of the city, when it was settled, it was settled as like a one mile long ridge with these valleys on either side. And then at some point, they built up all they could build up to fit more people. And so they built bridges over the valleys to create basically more land and Underneath the bridges are a series of terrifying, terrifying spaces, and that's where we got to go. It was very fun and very spooky and very dark. Mm -hmm. And haunted. Oh, like the most haunted. There is more than one ghost that hangs out in these spaces, but the one who came with us for the rest of our journey was named Mr. Boots. Legend has it (laughs) that if you encounter Mr. Boots underneath the city, he might scratch you. And a number of us came out of the tunnel with scratches on our arms. So are we all haunted now? Maybe. Mm -hmm. But there were definitely a series of haunted events that took place after our Mr. Boots encounter. And you might hear about them today. 
One of the other fun things we did when we were in Edinburgh before we moved north to explore the country was visit some yarn shops. Yeah. So the two in Edinburgh that we got to go see, one was called Ginger Twist. Mm-hmm. And the woman who owns Ginger Twist... Is her name Jessica? ...is also an indie dyer. It was the most adorable, absolutely tiny shop, primarily full of yarn that she had dyed. It was a very narrow space that she had used masterfully to display this yarn. The ceilings were high. There was one of those cool old rolling library ladders. And we definitely picked up a couple of skeins while we were there. It was a very sweet space. So if you're ever in Edinburgh, high recommend. Currently, they're only letting two people in at a time, I think mostly because of COVID, but also because it's very tiny. It's super snugly in there. And maybe a 15, 20-minute walk away, we got to go visit Kathy's Knits. And Kathy's Knits is a glorious old-school yarn shop that has lots of books and printed patterns and yarn kind of everywhere. I think the majority of it is milled yarn that's dyed in the wool. But there were also some indie dyers shown there, and Kathy herself also dyes a little bit of yarn. So we got to peek at that and check out some great samples of finished projects. And it was a fun experience getting to visit these two lovely and very different shops. So when we left Edinburgh, the first other than visiting shops fiber thing that we did was we got to go visit Di Gilpin in her studio, which was a total treat. Mm -hmm. If you don't know about Di Gilpin's work, Di is a knitwear designer She's also a yarn designer, and we carry her Leland. By the way, I've been saying that wrong for months. It's not Laland. It's Leland, lamb's wool, in both weights, the DK and the Aran weight, in our shop. And it's beautiful yarn. So she designs knitwear patterns, yarn, and also, she's not just designing for hand knitters. She's designing knitwear for couture design houses. She does like Edinburgh Fashion Week and all sorts of really kind of high profile fancy knit fashion. She does a very contemporary take on traditional Gansey knitting and her stuff is just beautiful. Her studio is really lovely. She and her production manager, whose name is Sheila Greenwell, co-taught us a little mini class about the history of Gansey knitting in Scotland and then talked a little bit about Dye's designs. And we got to hang out in her studio and meet her dog, Louie. Super cute. I think if you had been following along on our Instagram stories at that point, you saw lots of pictures of Louie. He is a sweetie. Yes. And that was such a really fantastic experience because I felt like the thread of all of the fiber content that we came across on this trip was about what you do with tradition. And so it was really neat to start out talking to somebody who is coming at the industry from multiple directions at once and doing something that's very intentional about adapting traditional techniques for a modern audience. It was fantastic. And being able to like see the Gansey sweaters that she has knit, not just in photos in her source book or looking online. But actually getting to touch those sweaters and see the amount of detail that goes into the texture and the intentionality of the stitch placement to kind of tell stories throughout the fabric was a really special experience. I imagine we will do an episode on Gansey knitting at some point, but just as kind of a general, if you're not familiar with it, they're traditional fisherman sweaters that contain design elements that are biographical mm -hmm. in some way. They're either 
like family specific or village specific or island specific. And you can take these different design elements and put them together in a way that creates something unique for each sweater wearer. That was just a really great class. She was fantastic. And it was a really exciting way to immerse ourselves in things on the front end of this trip, because from there we just picked up speed and kind of steamed up to the highlands, which was very different than being the eastern coast of Scotland. Okay. Mm -hmm. Can we sidebar? Yes. Jessica. Karen. (laughs) (laughs) So when we were in Edinburgh, Jessica took it upon herself to interact with every dog that came into eyesight, often by doing something like shouting, your dog is beautiful, across the street, and then sometimes chasing the dog down to pet it. I didn't run. I never ran in that city. (laughs) (laughs) So we spent a couple of days in the Highlands, and the first person that we got to spend time with was Charlotte Flower. And Charlotte is not a fiber person. She's a chocolatier who specializes in infusing chocolates with local foraged wildcrafted ingredients. So like wild garlic and flowers and all sorts of things that grow outside and you might not think about putting in your mouth. But she made amazing ganaches and had them ready for us when we arrived. And we spent an entire afternoon learning how to make truffles together, which was a delicious, delightful experience. And then Jessica went swimming. Yes. So when I was back at Di Gilpin's studio, I was chatting with Di and learned that she was a wild swimmer. And we talked about that for a bit. And during that conversation, I think Susie, our amazing, accommodating tour guide, was like, also Charlotte Flower is a wild swimmer. Maybe that's a good place for you to jump in the water. So at the end of our day together with Charlotte, as she was cleaning up chocolate and getting the space that we were working in put back together, I asked her about her wild swimming practice. And she perked up and was like very interested in talking to me about this. And I don't identify as a wild swimmer. I don't spend lots of time swimming in wild places. I guess I had never even thought about the term until it came up repeatedly while we were on this trip. But I did think if I was going to travel all the way to another country, I was definitely going to jump in the water while we were there. And Charlotte's lovely husband walked us down to the shoreline of Loch Tay, and I did bring my bathing suit. I hopped in the water, and it was about four degrees Celsius, she told me, and it was very exciting. (laughs) Yeah, two things about this. When we left the classroom space, we had no idea who this man was. We were just following him. And 100% Jessica will follow literally any person to anywhere to go swimming, as we learned. Mm -hmm. And as we were walking down there, he was like, did she warn you about how cold it is? And that she herself swims with a hot water bottle when it's like this. And Jessica was like, hmm, nope. Well, okay. And did it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't regret it at all. I went in twice and it was fantastic. So that magical day started with chocolate, transitioned into an exciting dip into latte in the very cold water. And then we traveled right down the road to one of the most magical places we went on our trip, the Scottish Cranagh Center. I was not expecting to like this place as much as I did. A cranog is, like in a very general sense, a platform in a body of water with a house built on it. Unfortunately, their actual like reproduction cranog that they had built burned down. So they didn't have a cranog to show us. And they were very apologetic about that. And to make it up to us, 
they pulled out textiles that are not usually part of their regular accessible collection and fair trade, 100%. So amazing and fascinating to get to see those. If you're a history person, for your reference, the Cranig Center is an Iron Age museum. You might know better than me what years those were. It's a long time ago. And the people who were living in the Cranigs were producing hand-spun yarn that was so consistent and so finely spun that they are unable to reproduce it and that the only thing comparable is machine-milled yarns at a very fine gauge, like a lace weight. And they were expertly woven into a really fine, strong fabric that somehow pieces of it survived at the bottom of a lake. Right. So one of the things that happens at the bottom of a very cold body of water is that there's no aerobic bacteria down there to eat things that would decompose in other settings, things like fabric. One of the specific textile pieces that they showed us was responsible for a reframing of the understood timeline of different techniques and specifically decorative techniques. There were beautiful dyes happening and really gorgeous decorative elements being employed as well. One of the things the guide who showed us around kept talking about was how when we talk about things like the Stone Age, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, that's about the material people are making their weapons from. And we would think of a lot of things differently if we were framing prehistory, really, in terms of what people were making and wearing for their daily lives. Kind of similarly, we got to visit the Highland Folk Museum. Maybe specifically similarly, one of the main attractions at that location was inaccessible to <laughs> us. So the Highland Folk Museum, like the Cranig Center, is like a living history museum. And people dress in period clothing, and there are buildings from specific times that you can go visit. And the most popular area of the Folk Museum was a set of buildings, like a village, that had been used as a film set for Outlander. I believe so. If you're an Outlander fan, you have seen this place. And the day that we arrived to visit the Folk Museum, we weren't able to go because a series of trees had fallen. Yeah, Multiple trees. Somehow there must have been a storm. So we did not get to visit that part, but we did get to go visit a Scottish black house. We had the opportunity to look in some of the little World War II era homes that had lots of knitting represented all over the staged houses. There were knit pot holders. There were baskets of actual knitting on chairs by fires. There was evidence of darning socks and all sorts of things that many of us do in our homes today. So it was fun to get to take a peek at some historical knit pieces and the types of needles that people were using in Scotland at the time, which were largely very long double-pointed needles, often with knitting belts hanging out nearby. So it was a cool experience. Can we go back to the Cranig Center for a minute? So one of the things that happens at the Cranig Center is that they do these sort of this like experimental archaeology sort of thing where they try to reproduce practices. And they discovered something accidentally regarding dyeing, which I feel like we need to share. A hundred percent we do. So they discovered this accidentally because they have interns. And when they do their sort of natural dyeing reproduction, they use Iron Age mordant, which often includes urine. And they discovered that urine with a high alcohol content gets you much more vibrant colors. 
It's possible someone else had also discovered this in a different context, but they were very excited. It's the first place I learned that, so... Absolutely. (laughs) The more you know. (laughs) Speaking of natural dyeing, and I'm going to go ahead and say modern mordants, we got to meet Julie from Black Isle Yarns and Emily from Flutterby Knits. Mm -hmm. I think this was like our last experience mainland before we went to the Isle of Skye. Julie and Emily came to the hotel where we were staying and set up a trunk show of Julie's naturally dyed yarns and Emily's amazing designs. They've done a lot of collaborative work together, and it was, A, incredibly exciting to meet them, and B, super interesting to talk with them about their process and the things that they do. Julie spent quite a bit of time talking to us about Scottish wool. And coming into this trip, we didn't have a lot of knowledge about what the wool environment is like in Scotland. There's a lot of talk about protecting heritage breeds and like tiny farms here in the United States and micro mills that are popping up all over the place to cater to these very small farms. And the way that wool as a commodity is treated in Scotland is just a very different experience. And there's not a lot of locally produced Scottish wool that's available to people. You'd think that there would be because there are sheep everywhere. But the way that wool is priced by the wool boards kind of disincentivizes the harvesting of fleece for yarn production for people who keep sheep. So there's the wool council and somebody with a flock, somebody with any sheep, has to get a permit to sell their fleeces to anyone other than the wool council. And so that's part of the way that the government is like subsidizing this agricultural practice of keeping sheep. One of the things that Julie from Black Isle Yarns was doing was she was working with farmers that had sheep on the Black Isles, basically in her neighborhood, and very specifically and very intentionally having yarn milled from specific blocks in a way that is not all that uncommon in the U.S., But that was something I had totally taken for granted as information that's available to us as knitters. The other exciting thing that Julie shared with us was her process for acquiring her dye stuffs. So she's a natural dyer. And one of the more interesting things to me that we learned about from Julie was land access. In Scotland, almost all of the land is privately owned, but there are land access laws that basically allow people to go where they want as long as you're being respectful. So if you see a hillside that's covered in rhubarb, I don't know, some plant, (laughs) sure, sheep as well, but some plant where you look at that and think that would make great dye material, you can go and harvest some of that. And the natural dyers that we talked to while we were in Scotland were very intentional about only taking what you need and using what you take. So nobody's like clear cutting this hillside of dye material, but they're going and they're hand harvesting things that will be useful for them at the scale that they're producing. And she kind of talked us through her process of working with these very local materials. I bought a tea towel from her that had a map of Black Isle and the different materials that she harvests and dyes with. And she spoke to us a lot about how important it is to her in her process to make sure that the natural dyes are long-lasting on the local yarn that she's dyeing on, because she wants this thing that you knit to be something that you still love in 10 years. 
I really liked that way of looking at sustainability. Like not only is it sustainable from a manufacturing side, but it is sustainable from a consumer side. Also, Emily from Flutter by Knits. So the two of them had just put out a book called Perspectives. In the UK during lockdown, one of the things that was permitted was you could socialize with one other person. And so they were each other's person. And so they had put together this book of patterns that was born out of all of the long walks that they'd gone on together and like all of that experience of being sort of buddied up during this long period of time. First of all, I should mention we got to see a really beautiful shawl that was designed by our friend Tyne Swedish, whose handle is Cleverest Stitch. But I'm kind of obsessed with this sweater. There is a sweater, and the name of the pattern is, I'm going to say Canisp. It's spelled C-A-N-I-S-P. I'm very <laughs> sorry if I just butchered that. And we will link to this as well on Emily's website. And this sweater is your public knitter litmus test because of the way it's constructed. It's a striped sweater that is knit bottom up and has a raglan line on the front of it. And the way that the sleeves are constructed is that they are knit in a big flap that wraps over the top of your arms and is seamed along the back so that there is like this diagonal line that joins the front to the back of the arm. And it is deceptively simple looking and really smart construction. And you would never see this in a ready-to-wear piece of anything. It's cropped and boxy and super comfy. And magically, Emily knits samples for herself and her size happens to be my size. So I got to go somewhere and try on a sample and have it fit my body. And it was a miracle. So that was exciting. <laughs> I really want to knit this sweater. And I feel like it's the kind of thing that if you're out somewhere, you're going to look at that thing and be like, hold on. And you're going to get followed around by knitters like a mama duck being followed by baby ducklings who are looking at the back <laughs> of your sleeves trying to figure out how you did the thing. And I am very excited about my new duck future. Mm -hmm. It's how you make <laughs> new knitter friends. That's right. So then we went to Isle of Skye, which was beyond gorgeous. Magical and mystical and probably out of a movie and not even a real place. It was fantastic. And while we were there, we got to visit a croft. Mm -hmm. We spent our day visiting Island at the Edge, where we were hosted by the croft owners, the farmers, the crofters? The crofters. Yasmin and Trevor, who are funny and amazing and are doing really interesting things with fiber. Mostly Trevor was doing interesting things out on a boat in the water. So we had a brief period of time with him over lunch. But Yasmin took us around their croft and introduced us to animals and talked to us about her different breeds of sheep. I have to tell you, the first animals that we got to visit, though, were her two highland cows. They were so pretty. They were naughty and delightful and some of my favorite cows that we met while we were there. And we met kind of a lot. While we were there, they somehow were like turning the lights off and on. These cows were up to some shenanigans, 100%. We got to meet a sheep named Stupid Sheep, who is possibly the smartest sheep that lives at this croft. He would jump in and out of the fence in the area that he was in to kind of go where he felt like going. Stupid Sheep was slander against the sheep, who was a genius. <laughs> That's right. He was part of the flock of cheviots that she had at the croft. Karen mentioned that she doesn't know how to pronounce anything in Scotland, nor do I. <laughs> and, and I found that what I historically had thought was pronounced cheviot as a breed of sheep 
is definitely not Cheviot and is definitely Cheviot. Yes. So the Cheviots that were at the Croft were beautiful, lovely animals. We also got to visit with a couple of North Ronaldsey sheep, which are very small and I think also live in other Hebridean islands. And there is actually a lot of them on Orkney and they live on the beach. And the people on that island have built retaining walls basically to keep the cows up on land on the grass and the sheep on the other side on the shoreline. And those sheep eat seaweed and not grass. They're also small and cute, and you could probably stick one in your backpack and have a sheep come home with you. I just love the idea of a beach sheep. Yeah. That's our beach sheep. Mm-hmm. They're so cute. <laughs> also the Hebridean sheep. Which are amazing. Also a small breed. They were my favorite. Very dark fleece, the ones that she had there. I guess I don't know if they come in other colors, but they're a breed of sheep that sometimes have double sets of horns which I think is a unique characteristic and super cute on sheep. And they were lovely. And we got to feed them, like hand feed them, handfuls of sheep kibble feed oats. (laughs) She told us we could eat it. It was a bunch of grains. At least as lore has it, the Hebridean sheep were sort of dropped off around on these islands by the Vikings Mm -hmm. as like cached resources, basically. And they were tiny and I loved them. We didn't do a lot of sheep hugging on this trip. Uh, absolutely no sheep hugging happened for me. Yeah. The sheep didn't want to be hugged. And I respected their boundaries. The cows, on the other hand. First of all, I don't know what level of Disney princess this makes Jessica. Hmm. (laughs) But she has the ability to approach a fence. There is a highland cow a hundred yards away eating from a fresh bale of hay, enjoying its breakfast, minding her business. And Jessica can summon her across the field for pets on the nose. Because me and cows are meant to be together. (laughs) And I love them and they know it. So they want to come visit me. I will also say that Yasmin and Trevor have a dog. Have two dogs. One of their two dogs was actually genetically legitimately one quarter wolf. Mm -hmm. And was not a big fan of having 20 people in their house, which was entirely fair. Jessica successfully pet that dog too. I did. It was my mission. (laughs) I was there to eat delicious Cullen skink that she had cooked for us before we arrived and to learn about spinning because she showed us a spinning demonstration. But really, goal number one was to pet this dog. So we should mention a little bit what Yasmin is doing with this fiber, speaking of spinning. Yasmin also works with traditional Gansey, but not like a modern take on traditional Gansey, like traditional, traditional Gansey. And one of the things that she will do is she will basically do a genealogical investigation on you and then figure out what designs correlate with what she finds in her genealogical investigation and helps you put together a design for a sweater that uses them. She'll also knit the sweater for you, but that is not a cheap endeavor. It's an investment. Yes. She also has, I'm going to say retreat space. She has an Airbnb on the croft where people can come and stay and you can, I think, help take care of the animals and you can learn how to spin or she will take you through the process of knitting the Gansey. Like she does a lot of experiential learning for people on her croft in addition to all of the farming, which is fulfilling and involved work. I think if you stay at her Airbnb, stupid sheep, the road scholar of all fleecy animals, will just let himself into your Airbnb and probably like make you tea or something. (laughs) Pretty sure. 
And then the last class that we took as we were headed back to Edinburgh was a Dorset button making class from a woman named Tanya Jones, whose maker name is TJ Frog. We learned a tiny bit about the history of Dorset buttons, but we were also kind of on a crunch schedule because our ferry needed to be earlier in the day than we expected. So Tanya was really accommodating and was able to get us hands-on working on creating our own Dorset buttons right away. So that was greatly appreciated because we didn't want to be stranded on the island. I would have been fine with it personally, but... Mm -hmm. but we did have to keep going. But we learned about the function... These are like functional art items, but also the decorative elements of Dorset buttons. And it's, once you get the hang of it, a simple hand-stitching technique that can take place on a variety of scales. Tanya showed us dinner plate-sized Dorset buttons and teeny tiny ones that were historical pieces that were the size of a pea. And we definitely weren't at that skill level yet, but we did get to experiment with some fingering weight yarn. And I think there were probably different weights of yarn in different parts of the classroom for other people who were making them. And we started making our own dorset buttons. We did a post about it on our Patreon where you got to see some pictures of the different things that people were working on. And we may revisit this handcraft in the future because it's a super fun way to use up little bits of yarn. I really like it as like a potential shawl fastener. Kind of fun, kind of addictive. Definitely good travel project too. Speaking of, did you knit anything on our trip? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone might be shocked to learn that on this knitting adventure, I did almost no knitting. I spent weeks leading up to this trip agonizing about what I was going to take with me and what would be on my needles. I decided on the Phantom Fuzz by Park Williams because I thought, I'm going to knit so much, I can fit all of the yarn, which is two skeins of mohair, for this whole human sweater in my bag and just do the whole thing while I'm there. A, I was exhausted the whole trip because we were so busy, and I just couldn't make myself knit. And when I did, it was largely when we were traveling on the bus, and I discovered that mohair is the rudest thing you can knit with on a bus <laughs> because the fiber was just like flying. It was airborne. And I felt like I was making everyone covered in little bitty fuzzies. And it made me put my knitting away on a number of occasions, even though everyone was lovely and nobody said a word to me about it. <laughs> I was very self-conscious about the project that I chose and I would choose differently on a future trip. How did you do, Karen? Oh, good grief. So I had planned to knit the second one of a colorwork pair of socks. Mm -hmm. I knit the ribbing. You sure did. I knit 12 rows in 10 days. Because same, I get travel sick, so I couldn't knit on the bus. We had evening knitting time basically everywhere. And making use of it to actually knit turned out to be extremely optimistic for me. So that's okay. I did almost lose my knitting because Mr. Boots tried to snatch it from me in an elevator. I was there. I saw it happen, and it was a real thing. <laughs> I got onto the elevator with my knitting in a bag, and we got up to the fourth floor, and I realized there was a string ominously disappearing from my ball of yarn through the elevator door, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> I felt my heart stop in my chest. It was terrifying. <laughs> It was there. It was waiting. We took the elevator back down and it was just on the other side of the door and not disappeared down into the elevator shaft, which is what I was really afraid of. 
I blame Mr. Boots. I do, too. It was definitely scary. It was the most harrowing knitting experience I think I've ever been adjacent to. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty much it for us this week. We are going to come back with a regular episode next week. Thank you again for being patient with us while we recovered. This was a completely magical experience, and it won't be the last trip that we take. So if you felt like you were maybe interested in going on some sort of knitting adventure with us, we'll definitely be planning another one, and we will 100% be letting the Make Good community know about it and inviting whoever wants to participate to come along with us. So keep listening. We're about 85% recovered from this one, so (laughs) it'll probably be a minute before we announce the next trip. Super extra thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you were following us on Patreon, you know we were trying to kind of keep up with ourselves on posts. We really appreciate your support. It lets us do this every week without ever taking on advertisers. You should follow us on Instagram. We are posting pictures there relevant to the things we talk about. We've got another knit-along coming up. We don't know what it is yet, but we will by the time we talk to you next. (laughs) Gansy sweaters. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) You can subscribe to us wherever you get your audio podcasts, possibly where you're listening to us right now. You could also rate and review us. It helps other knitters find us. You can visit our website at makegoodpod.com and check out the show notes. We will link to all of the fun places that we went so you can go check them out, too. And you can use the contact form there to send us a question because next week we'll start answering questions on Make Good Again. Also, super extra thank you to people who sent us emails while we were gone just to say you hoped that we were having a good trip because we super were and we really appreciate it. You guys are the best. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.